Well, welcome to our read aloud. We have a former library employee who was here for over 30 years, Rick Brown, who is also currently the editor and um, head writer for Naked Sunfish. So he, he and Naked Sunfish are here. Uh, he will include some uh, excerpts from his new book, Naked Sunfish Best Bites. And I'd like to turn this over to him now and have him introduce the other members. Thanks, Rick. Good afternoon. Uh, we have some of the writers from uh, the website that we've been around for about nine and a half years now. We have a readership of about 5,000 a month, so it's uh, not large, not huge, but significant. Um, the first person that's going to be up is uh, avant-garde poet uh, Dr. John Bennett, and he will be followed by uh, poet and writer Elisa Phillips. And we have a special guest today who wasn't listed on the program, but um, I had called her at the last minute. She said yes, and Emily Glenn will be reading a story from the current issue. Is that correct? And we also, you're running the Cincinnati Marathon on Sunday, right? The half, well, forget it then. <laughs> <laughs> so we wish her luck on that. Then after Emily, I will uh, be reading excerpts from my, my book and uh, some stuff from the current issue and past issues. So if you'd like to uh, hang around, it'd be great to have everybody. So um, we'll start with Dr. John Bennett. Saw dink, my cup of grit, your ash and light, your towel clanging tomb, my solid airtime, my nasal claw entry, your sock dent core. Your final earloom, my hash locker vote, my dust lake swig, your tooth tub clots, your owl map tears, my single thumb belch, my sink turd revelation, your eye reversal gate. Gland width. Sordo sondeo la carca, yeah, yeah, flooding. Peso, piso, paso, pongo, yeah, yeah, esters. La colmena de petróleo, mis nadas. Cristal, mi cumbre pesada, socks. Chupame el aire fangoso, Toaster. Soon. Dog lamp off. Ten mutes kill shirtly. Boomed. The tramp gas over spill. Not rust the tent pill. Shaper of head fart. Last bile in the nap, 
rot, small, clanged, pig, noose, puddle, of blood, nearly shot, scamper, saw, flood, tune wipe, the dog slathered, big phone, he eft, bubbled in the woods. Scuttled luggage, luggage nest, the soap, lunch or lurch, grass meal, ah, hot halfer, choke, er, mate, the mast, um, away, entranced, shirt, lack, itty, crack, itty, mine, dog, hip, loot, loot, walks away, the mud master, smoke, swirls on the stit, my hung, leg, Smells the shit st link log cash a float. Choose and the eyes my heel rinsed air. Drooled across the room the moon uts blank awake rash spits in a mouth beak foam lower month. A bean snore, puddles of ass comb, teetless, air dream, muzzle, dotty, bloated, phylist, my flag, aw, I numbly greased, me slalivrate, lung, the empty. All ladder clasp, scuttle of <clears throat> going to read some uh, stick figures from this little book called Neat Latoa is partly in Nahuatl. Oh, Isecto, Yolo no Siwatli, Ik, I, Comerte, Coatli, Congriosotli, Dio, Idiota, Senda.
these are some instructions for performances. Doom name. Fumble jerk your smoking pants. Leather nose your tubs of nickels. Buy a stone and stand there blinking. Nod and cough like sand illumination. Swimming through the mud, oh please remember. Numbered shirt, you raised your greasy arms. Go away. Sort the linty pills your wallet saves. Dry the gutter with your hairdo. Drop a thumbprint in the river. Stroll a statue past the Capitol. Subtract the dribbling from your acid reflux. Nod the toothpick flying toward the horizon. Limb chaw. Lose your sandwich in the fog. Rent out a dime and dictionary. Comb your linguine with a hamster. Lunge for ice cubes in the laundry chute. Fold the lobster in your pocket. Chew the elbow you forgot. I read a couple things from a, a new a book I wrote in Mexico last month. Caminón, culminante y brasculado, piernente y soga circulante, andamente me moría, me moronía motil y fragasaba con mi exitomado un rastro mierdón en el camino de mis nojos. Numinto numeronte, Pantalona llena de que un cisnismo, un llago, fortín y fame licuado, miraba la niramide esférica que multiplicaba en mi hecho donde se filtraba la lluvia del sol. Oh, dnia sotográfico, súbame a la cueva riñonisible donde mi nonedita se rodea, se rola mondante, se ruega hacia su mismo principio. Me fui, me fue. Miré desde arriba y lo que vi fue cacasana, el mundo merosímil y el naire con vacío. El volcán ninverso, naclaca, simbolona, pusátil y tiendorito que me salía del clulo. Slismo ni nogadada me perdí en la boata de mi sueño, una capa de lagar y ñoñotaciones, mis toallas circulares. Cri, cri, y afamética surgía de mi mano, puntuado como un redo agujereado que hacia el sol 
levanté hacia el pie, apunté y hacia atrás o dejé revolcándose en la graniza del camino. And to finish a little piece from the other day called Neblina Blanca. Yefet was not yak, tree heel, shutter nap, the sink dream. Ah, Mr. Knack and float, yen, rice, toalla, mi mistral, tuerca, costanada, sentido de loomer wasp. The trice-throated, thrice-glob-sat, plunger-sopa-de-fideos, shirtless, tanta-caca, mastil, nor tempted, shat-a-hill, nostril, nape, nate, cluster-and, niggardly-spread, tome-flood, white-tomb-mobbed, warm Obsiniana, Yautli, Itzli, Dang, Fog. Thank you. she appeared, not arrived, or came, or showed up, because it was rather like magic. One minute I'm speaking to my best friend on my cell phone, the next chasing slow-moving grumpy children from the middle of the street, then settled on the stoop, basking in the lunchtime sun, when poof, there she is, quiet, curious, sleek and lean, hungry hungry for us, so hungry. We fed her and she strayed. Hungry, she returned and stayed. Um, two years ago, I had the privilege of studying with Carl Phillips at Kenyon's Summer Writing Workshop. And these are two poems that came out of the workshop. And this one I dedicated to my daughter, Cricket. Beneath the waning twilight returns a soft music, a soothing lullaby, sung by the crickets and other night creatures, filling the pastel pink princess room, complete with fairy wings, gilded butterflies, and jeweled tiaras, gems in the crown of the rich lacy canopy, which sheltered the sleeping cherub and her most treasured friend, a bear with a worn nose and bruised ears, whose fierce plushiness, plushiness, 
chase the boogeyman from the room night after night after night. Sand castles. Like stitches, anchoring them, pinning them, or fastening them carefully, weaving a loose, broken, or interrupted pattern, or creating a movable snugness or rightness. As in the story of the bear's missing button, which slipped simply through its holes, stitched not because the button was a, re a required completeness, but rather an act of love. Fest or free, its utility, a visible reminder of its fixedness or ability to hold hostage, reminding them, bearing witness to the simple fact that fabric once cut, once tiered, may mourn the disruption of pattern or become more than it once was in a single plane, so were the children who ran ahead out towards the beach and the setting sun. No one can hear you. No one can hear Sorry. All right. Um, this is probably the most recent poem that has appeared in The Naked Sunfish. That's mine. <laughs> uh, letter to a Fallen Soldier. I am alone tonight in the dimly lit house, not unlike one Rochester would have chosen, with windows frozen shut, uptight like his heart, fists clenched, stand firm, march towards the line, the line which stands firm despite, despite logic they march, row by row, ready, step by step, aim, shoulders tight, eyes focused. In this moment, what, what do you think of? Do you think of all the mouths you have kissed, warm, wet tongues, searching, searching for solace, for comfort, for comfort, for sticky sweet sex, um, for one hot fuck, <laughs> for tenderness, for love, and now on the eve of fire, of the resounding burst, of the beginning, of the end, of the next chapter, do you pause? Do you think, is it worth it? Do you waver in your commitment as you, as you did once before? Does your finger reverently graze the trigger? like it did me, longing to pull back. But does your heart hesitate? Do you take a breath, take stock of the trail of litter behind you? Broken bits of the march, wrappers, slick with sticky bits of DNA, an appetizer for the worms. Worms who search the earth, like cold, wet tongues, seeking garbage, rich, sweet, organic matter and flesh to devour, to process to secrete like shit, reclaiming the profane and cleansing it pure. The honorable worm, lowly but with purpose, the glib tongue exalted and yet dirty and profane, swallowing and processing rotting flesh, sucked in one mouth and expelled out the other, packed and loose, pure and fertile once more, seduced by wiggling tongues, licked sticky, laughed at and enslaved, and then consumed, swallowed whole, digested and spewed out, like disgusting, diseased, rotting flesh into the twilight. 
The tongue which once pleased, left shredded, left for dead. A tongue like those worms which sought morsels of succulents, shift out what failed to please. Do you pause? Or perhaps now I should say, did you? For the span of time between aim and fire is but a breath. A pause of the heart, that moment between anticipation, ecstasy, and the spew of sperm, the wriggling bearers of life, slingshot through the narrow passage, shot forth like firm, determined worms, blind and helpless, a hailstorm of bullets, determined and true. The irony, dear sir, life begins with dancing worms and ends with a feasting of worms. Fertile ground, tilled and plundered, blood slick, coated and rich. Your tongue, I remember your slick tongue, trails of saliva down my creamy neck, over the berries of my breast, down to the sugar, salty, spicy richness of my core. Slick, smooth, talking tongues telling my ears what my heart wanted to believe, but my mind, never mind logic. Onward you march, yard after yard, inch after inch, driving home to that place in the field, to the corrupt reflection, creatures of opposition. Lines of believers, creatures of duty, worm food. Tis my duty. You couldn't possibly know of duty. Hear, hear to God and country. Oh, what fools you were. And now you bleed into the darkening theater, and I, I bleed no more. Teeny rooms, a coffin, closed up country house, wide open meadows, the scene of the battle, an oasis for now. As worms invade your flesh, setting up camp, in the cradle of your hollow pelvis, gasping and gurgling in ecstasy, recalling my cries as your worms raced to my bloody field, plundering me. No fortress in it is impenetrable, impenetrable, and no one knows until it is upon them the agony of life, the mirrors of death, fire, and life, the ravaging heart of the forest, touched by lightning in a blaze of unintelligible screams descends a madness, a madness of our own, a madness we willfully sought. In your madness, the worms claim your body, returning it to dust. In mine, in mine I encapsulate, if but for a time, the fire of life. And when my blood spills, ripped from me, will be breathing proofs of hearts of fire, life left by your fire.
half-eight curtains. You know the short balance across the top and then the curtain that covers the center of the window. The entire place is decked out in Danish white and blue, all sorts of china. Little Dutch boy figurines, geese and their broods, little houses like the ones KLM used to give away, and small plates. It's home homey, but not overly kitschy. The coffee comes in mixed match mugs, and there's a lot of it. The tea is brewed right, and she has begun to stock my favorite cookies. I did not ask for them, mind you. They just appeared one day on the plate besides my coffee one afternoon, and they've remained there ever since. Now, she does not have Wi-Fi exactly, but the big name coffee house around the corner does, and I poach from there. And it seems everyone does, but I'm a bit concerned, as there never seems to be very many people there, and while all the people are Ruby's, but I guess I'm borrowing trouble and will just run with it as the natives do. What will happen will happen. No real need to borrow worry. Our place is all spit spot now, well except for boxes and books on the floor and the DVD player, which I cannot seem to get hooked up quite right, and then there's the broken shelf in the kitchen cabinet above the dishwasher. But our bedroom and office are just the way I want them, and the bathroom has a big tub, which is just excellent. I am not in love with the arrangement of the furniture in the living room, but I'm going to leave it for a while and just breathe and see what happens. It is not as if I nailed it to the floor or anything. It just does not feel like home. You're not here yet, and while I'm lonely in this new place, and while it's our stuff in the room, something is missing, your laughter and your smile. I tell myself the weeks will pass quickly, and they have, but still, it's not home until you're here. So back to Ruby's place, which does feel like home. The tables are scattered around the room, and there's great natural light. In the morning, it is too busy to actually work. Lots of people in and out, buying coffee to go. I do like to sit and take in all the energy. I graded papers the other morning here, and I wrote in my journal the other day before my class. No serious writing, mind you. At lunchtime, there's a lot of in and out traffic. She makes the greatest sandwiches, and she knows everyone by name. When I first started coming in, she gave me the eye, like she was a prize fighter sizing me up. I was an outsider, I guess. But then on the third day as I walked in, she called out my name and had my coffee ready before I even had a chance to set my stuff down <clears throat> at what was becoming and is now my table. It is my table now. Ruby will make people move when I come in, and they are already there. I even caught her moving the reserve sign as I walked up the sidewalk the other day. Now, I know you would have figured it out right away, but I missed it for a while. Ruby is a bit different. She is very tall and a bit like the Arthur from the Golden Girls. I mean, very tall and a bit broader than one would expect. And I am tall, but she is very tall, almost an imposing figure. Her voice is deep, but not unlike a woman who has smoked for a number of years. I have hence learned that she has never smoked, well, tobacco anyway. She is a charmer and very warm and friendly. Many a night of late, I have stayed past closing, writing and talking and listening to music. She has live music many nights of, of the week, and I have once or twice come in on Saturday and waited tables and made coffee. Yes, I know, I learned to make coffee. She's a most excellent teacher. She needed the help, and well, I needed the company. I'm slowly making friends, but I am lonely, and I know you will be here soon, but I am enjoying her company. She is a nurturer and a mom figure, and I love that she has taken me in and made me a home away from home that I'm trying to make for us, but you're not here. <laughs> It is 
hard to leave a place you have been for a long time and come here mid-year. It has its own unique challenges, and what you know, I tend to stay on the sidelines and watch, and while breaking the ice is your strong suit. What was that TV show with the theme about it being a place you can call, or you can go, or everyone knows your name? Well, you know what I mean. Ruby's place is my place away from home, and she knows my name. The other night, while I was grading papers and getting ready to put in my hour of writing, two men walked in. They looked a bit uncomfortable. They were dressed, you know, very hipster, very like back home. Black cords, black shoes, tight black sweaters, their hair styled in their ever-trendy hipster glasses, very slim and lanky, you know the body type. Around here, it isn't casual to the point of sloppy sometimes. The college is laid back, and it shows. I miss the trendy stuff from the old hood, and I have to say sometimes I feel overdressed, but I am not in the mood to alter my style just yet. I mean, I have my books in boxes and my stuff is all over the place, and I am just still nasty. I am not going to stop matching my socks to my outfits, <laughs> and I see, fail to see how PJs are appropriate for anywhere but bed on Saturday morning. So they come in and they are so out of place in Aunt Ruby's parlor with the little Dutch blue tea sets and the gingham tablecloths. It was like Vogue, Vogue meets country living, and it was not a smooth integration. They sat down and looked very uncomfortable in the wooden chairs. They shot me a look, which, if any icier, would have frozen me where I sat. I could see them in the city on velour couches or sprawling in a bistro on a banquette, but these cute little chairs and the tea house seemed to cause them some disease. Or was it something else? I will say, that at this point, I had pulled out my journal and abandoned the papers I had been grading. I wanted to record the scene unfolding in front of me. I felt like a voyeur, but something was making me watch this actively. I knew if I, I knew if we had been sitting together, you would have moved your chair to my side of the table and begun to narrate what we were watching. Ruby came out from behind the counter and said, what do you want, boys? Now, I must say, they were men, not boys. Not really. Plus, Ruby was using a rough, coarse tone I could not identify. I will say it was this interlude that caused the light bulb in my head to click on. I finally figured out what should have been obvious, but was not. The taller one asked about the specials. Ruby announced there were none. Now, that's not true, as I had eaten it for dinner. The shorter one asked about the wine list. Ruby said that she had some house wine, and it changed every few days. They acted like they knew this but she didn't give them the list. So then Ruby says, they can have cheeseburgers and fries and some southern slaw with vanilla Cokes and walks off. Now I didn't even know she made cheeseburgers. Killer warm panini sandwiches, but I had never seen burgers. With a flourish, she retreats to the kitchen and the door slams behind her like a diva exiting the stage. Then it hit me. Wait a minute. <coughs> Wait a minute. No, no. Not, it, not that any of this matters, but their clothes, they were sitting together. I was intrigued, both by her reactions and their obvious uncomfort with me being there. I realized it was me. Then the total picture hit me. Ruby wasn't a she. She was he, being a she, which makes her she. But well, what does it matter, and why was she being so rude to those boys? But they weren't boys, they were men. Then I paused. Because I know by now you are grasping the paper so hard as you laugh from deep within yourself, my crazy brain. I used to shake my head and say, and you would say, it's okay. It is literally like that. The ideas zing around and I write them down.
so hoped I could write the story so that you would feel like you're right here with me. So after much clanging and banging in the kitchen, which is not usual, in general it is quiet and peaceful at Ruby's. Everything runs smoothly and is controlled. She emerged from the kitchen, disheveled and sweaty, with two platters heavily laden with the largest burgers I have ever seen and a mountain of fresh cut french fries. It smelled lovely. Then Ruby sat down with the men and they began to talk in quiet, hushed tones. And I decided that I was so very much an outsider and that this scene was private and I should leave them to their time, whatever it was, a reunion, old friends come to visit. I didn't know, it really wasn't my affair. I quietly gathered my belongings and stood and slung my bag over my shoulder and made my way to the door. Just as I reached for the handle, I heard a familiar voice of motherly authority. And where do you think you are sneaking off to, young lady? I gulped and half whispered, home? No, you are going to come over here, pull up a chair and enjoy my voice with me, she commanded. So I crept rather cautiously over to the table where the boys were eating. Ruby pushed a chair out and I sat down on the edge, balancing and feeling rather like one when sitting in the tiger display at the zoo. Claire, I want you to meet Byron Landis and his partner. They have come out from the city to visit with me. It has been a long time since we have seen one another. Life sometimes gets in the way. Byron was the owner of your table years ago. Showed up like you did one winter and, well, stayed until it was time to go. She says with an air of wistful calmness. The tone carried acceptance and understanding and curiously not a trace of the bitter bitterness one would expect at a long absence. Yes, sweetheart, I was sitting with Byron Landis. I gather he was filming in the area. And no, I did not think to ask for an autograph for you. I nod and take a sip of tea, which had just appeared in front of me. Boys, this is Claire. She is the new faculty member in the English department, and her special someone will be joining her soon. She rented the Peterson place, doing nice things to it. She helps out from time to time, and I think she is going to be camped out at that table for years to come. The men slowly turned to the table, which had become mine, turned back and smiled broadly at me and nodded. I just stare back, still rather unsure of exactly what I am seeing and experiencing. Then Ruby's son, as she calls him, smiles at me and says, Claire, welcome to the family. It is nice to see you and know that the table is once again occupied by someone who will care for it as it should be cared for. I blink. <clears throat> I sit at a table. I hardly care for it. I write on it, eat my meals on it, and stare out the window. I fail to see the connection, but the other three do, and they are all smiling like cats who have sipped some delicious cream. Then Ruby says to me, life's a puzzle. And sometimes, sweetie, the pieces just fall together. Sometimes quickly, and sometimes slowly. But when the time is right, you'll know. With that, she gets up, takes my half-drunk tea, and says, you best be getting home. I expect you will have a special someone calling you soon. I nod and get up. The boys shake my hand, and Byron walks me to the door and whispers low, take good care of her. She has taken the long road and found some peace. Even years from now, you will hold a place in her heart as a daughter. She had no children of her own, but those of us lucky enough to know her and be taken in, well, that is the best place to be, right? Chosen and accepted. Good night, Claire. As I walk home, my mind full of questions, it hits me. Acceptance, that priceless gift. Once rare, one rarely offered, but when offered with an open heart, there is no richer gift. So good night, my love. I cannot wait until you arrive. I know for sure Ruby has a table set for us. Thank you.
to one short piece, because I probably need to get ready. It's called Popcorn. I was trying to write nothing specific, just trying to get some words down on the page, something to start with, so I went and made some popcorn. Well, actually, the laundry was dry, so I went to the basement, folded and hung it, moved the wet clothes into the dryer, and then carried the clean laundry upstairs and put it away. I've noticed that putting one load of laundry away at a time is less discouraging than letting it all pile up. The stuff on the top of the basket near, nearly teetering out, smashing the things at the bottom, and then there's so much laundry to put away all at once. It's discouraging. So I put the laundry away, and then it was time for popcorn, and then writing. I measured the popcorn into a paper bag with the one-quarter measuring cup. Then I looked at the handful of kernels left in the package, and what the hell, added those two. The popcorn is old, purchased during my last popcorn phase, and I'm starting a new popcorn phase, so there's a lot of duds. That's how I rationalized the extra quarter cup. I fold the bag closed and put it in the microwave for 90 seconds. I learned the popcorn in a paper bag trick from Mark Fitman's book, Food Matters. That way you can have quick popcorn without the nasty chemical stuff. I need to buy more paper bags. When the popcorn is done, I take the bag out of the microwave, dump the contents, both popped and unpopped, into a bowl, mist it with olive oil, give the bowl's contents a shake, mist, shake, mist. I grind pepper, shake, sprinkle salt, shake, and then I'm satisfied, almost. On the way out of the kitchen, I grab the seasoned salt. I walk back upstairs, and as I reach the last step, I change my grip on the bowl, so I'm holding it by the bottom, and then I drop it. The bottom, warmed by its contents, is surprisingly hot. The bowl falls to the floor, sending popcorn and kernels shooting down the stairs. The seasoned salt rolls to the lowest spot in the hallway, the corner next to our bedroom door. I stand for a moment in disbelief. The house is silent. The dog is snoring in the next room. There was a time when he would have rushed out into the hallway and gobbled all the popcorn he could get, probably taking care of most of the kernels, too. Now he just sleeps on. He's getting old. A few pieces are left in the bowl. Not moving yet, I eat them. Then I step away from the sea of popcorn and kernels. I notice there are kernels caught in the decorative folds of my shoes. I take off my shoes and shake them out. Several unpopped kernels <laughs> rattle on the wood floor. I go into the spare room and get the vacuum cleaner. As I roll the vacuum cleaner by his bed, the dog wakes up and stiff with arthritic joints goes out into the hallway. I wonder if I'll have to prevent him from excitedly eating his way up and down the stairs. But no. He surveys the popcorn mess tiredly, as if to say, what have you done now? And then he trots wearily to his other bed in another room. I plug the vacuum in and start methodically in the hallway, pulling up popcorn detritus with the hose. I accidentally turn the vent side of the vacuum toward the stairs long enough to send a drift of popcorn down to the first landing. After that, I vacuum awkwardly, moving the bulky machine down the stairs with the vent away from the popcorn, clearing an area before I put the vacuum on it. Occasionally, popcorn stops up the end of the hose temporarily, creating a hydrangea-like bloom on the end of the nozzle. I reach the bottom landing and start working my way back up, capturing the stray kernels as I go. I wonder how many kernels I'll pick up here and there in the coming week. I put the vacuum away and take the bowl downstairs. I open a new container of popcorn. These kernels are much bigger than those in the last batch. This is Orville Redenbacher corn. The kernels are the size of pencil erasers. The previous package was Amish-grown popping corn, and in Mennonite fashion, 
The kernels were modestly sized. I put a quarter cup of kernels in a paper bag and then add a little more. I fold the bag and put it in the microwave. I check the laundry, it's not dry yet. I take the bag out of the microwave, dump the contents, both popped and unpopped into a bowl, and grab our olive oil spray, mist, give the bowl's contents a shake, mist, shake, mist. I grind pepper, shake, sprinkle salt, shake, done. I walk back upstairs. On my way through the hall, I grab the seasoned salt, which is still lying near the bedroom door. The dog is settled on the carpet in the spare room. I sit on the couch, eat a few pieces, and read the paragraph I wrote 40 minutes ago. A piece of popcorn drops on the floor. I pick it up and toss it to the dog. It lands two feet in front of him. The dog startles, then spies the popcorn. He stares at it with a pained expression. He feels obligated to eat it, but then he'll have to move to do it. I feel guilty for introducing this dilemma. I remember Fritz as a puppy when we first got him, bouncing around our apartment, snuggling on the couch. We let him on the furniture then, before we bought new furniture, our own furniture, before we started caring about the cleanliness of our house. Fritz gingerly stands. He walks stiffly toward the popcorn and eats it. He looks around, wondering what to do next, then walks to his bed, the one he started the afternoon in, and folds himself into it. In the basement, the dryer buzzes. I think about the young woman, the young man, the puppy, the apartment, and now the house. And then I go downstairs to get the laundry, picking up a popcorn kernel as I go. I don't think I'm going to use this. I'm a big mouth. Since we're supposedly moving into spring, <clears throat> jury's still out on that. <clears throat> I'd like to read a little story from the current issue um, from last winter. This is called Splits in the Snow. It was just a huge broccoli stem, but it had to go. Not in the disposal, and the food scrap cans on the mud porch were full. Better to just run it out to the backyard compost bins. It would be only, it would only be by an Ohio winter minute. Living here all, my whole, whole life, I should have known better. Matter not that I was in my pajamas, house shoes. My neighbors see me a lot in, as pajama boy. Wintertime equates to pajama boy sightings in my neck of the woods. No large deal, I thought. Stroll out, open lid. Dispose of big green stem, close lid, stroll back in. The first 60% of my plan was flawless. As I turned to go back into the warmth of the house, my right foot, ever so gracefully, began sliding forward in the newly fallen snow. My left foot, however, stayed put. The trunk of my body, followed by my head, 
went lower and lower at a perfect 90 degree angle towards the earth, an experience that once was both the speed of light and seemingly slow motion. I did the splits right there in my backyard. Now it was not my intention to do the splits. I do not normally do the splits at all, ever. Truth be told, I have never before successfully done the splits. I do not possess the desire to do the splits. And the fact that I was in the middle of doing the splits in the snow, wearing pajamas, did not change my opinion concerning personally participating in the doing of the splits. While all this was transpiring, I began singing what could be called the swearing like a sailor operetta. I pray there were no children within earshot. Wailing, gnashing of teeth, caterwauling even, I posed in the snow like some splits challenge cheerleader from a school granting degrees only in shop, wood, or auto. Doing the splits took mere seconds, yet it took several minutes for me to unsplit myself. And now, with every limp, every pulled hammy grimace, I become more and more steadfastly resolute in my de determination that someday soon, no matter what ages slurred the locals may call me, I will reside someplace warm for the entire winter and live happily in a splits-free environment. <clears throat> I have a series of uh, sort of deconstructed, deconstructed haiku, I guess you could call it, called hmms, little things that make you think. This is the first one I ever wrote, hmm number one. A booger hanging from one's nose at the mall is one thing. At the Museum of Modern Art, it's quite another. Just thought I'd class the thing up. <laughs> Loosen up, you guys, you got a test tomorrow or something? <laughs> Okay, moving to uh, summer from winter, or spring. I mowed my grass for the first time a couple days ago between monsoons. This is called When to Buy a New Lawnmower. When I was a boy, my father, to, to earn some extra cash, had a little lawnmower repair shop out back in the garage. So I know a bit about the machines and thought he did too. Actually, he did. But after I gave up on the push mower, the purest type with no engine at all, he gave me his. My wife and I had just purchased our house and since the yard was far from flat, pushing a 49-year-old real mower got to be quite a chore. Now I had my very first rotary lawnmower, and although it seems dumb to me now, I was pretty excited. It was some generic brand from some place like the Andersons a generic mower from a generic store. I didn't care. It was fire engine red with a 2.5 horsepower Briggs and Stratton and a bag on the back. A shiny, relatively new rear bag and lawnmower. The kind of stuff can get, get a guy going, at least when it's your first. Sure, it was a cheap $99 store brand, but it was homeowner Rick's first foray into power tools, Rum. The first summer or two it was fine. 
although the novelty did wear off when I realized it weighed like, oh, seven tons. This was way back in the days before safety features that shut off the motor when you're not mowing or stop the blade when you weren't pushing it. In other words, like older lawnmowers before it, it was dangerous. So by the third summer, the red paint wasn't so shiny. It didn't run so well. I probably didn't take as good a care of it as I should. I may or may not have hit it with a car in the garage. Depends on who you ask. But I figure if a man can't abuse his lawnmower, what can he abuse? Possibly his weed whacker. I've used those as a javelin, but that's another story altogether. The real big problem started when the lever that held the bag on the back started failing. Lawnmowers vibrate a lot and sometimes by the end of the chore the clasp would have loosened up considerably. Eventually that very latch holding the rear bag all and all the clippings were jettisoned into got real, real sloppy. I had to keep an eye on it and tighten the damn thing up every 10 minutes or so. Otherwise I assumed all hell would break loose. Little did I know how prophetic my concern turned out to be. One excruciatingly hot, humid August afternoon, the kind only people living in the Midwest or directly on the equator could know of. I decided I better get off my duff and mow the friggin' grass. The charm of cutting grass had long since turned to dreaded drudgery, even under the cruelest of conditions. And I had already waited too long. In August, if you have a lawn like mine, when, when it isn't, hasn't rained for a while, the weeds in the lawn get to be, say, 18 inches tall. So even though your grass, or however much of it there is, is turning brown and dormant, you're not so much mowing the grass as evening up the weeds. So I needed to make the four inch high grass and the 18 inch weeds even with each other at about two and a half inches. The lawn hadn't turned brown yet. It was right at the cusp of dormancy, still green and in need of mowing. I knew if the job didn't get done this day, soon my yard would look like the set of gunfight at the old K Corral, complete with tumbling tumbleweeds. Because it was about 900 degrees and 300% humidity, I shunned modesty, put on a pair of shorts, shoes, and a headband. I figured at least this way, my misery might lead to a little suntan. I started the mower, which took only 37 yanks on the cord. Already I was sweating profusely. I mowed behind the garage. Sweat poured off me like a waterfall. I mowed the side and front yards. I felt my shoes getting soaked with sweat. Now all I needed to do was the dreaded backyard with its picnic table moving, dog do do dodging, don't accidentally hit the flowers exhilaration. My pulse quickened at the thought that in 20 minutes I could be home free. But the totality of the brutally hot afternoon karma was teetering on disaster. I had in my haste disregarded the lever holding the bag on the back of the mower. What happened next was like a backyard simulation of the Big Bang Theory. As soon as the bag was almost completely full of grass, dust, and weeds, that faulty little lever holding the bag to the back of the rear bag and rotary lawnmower gave up the ghost. Immediately the bag blew off the back and in one giant whoop, what seemed like a bale of hay smashed into my sweat-ridden body and face. <laughs> 
I was literally covered from head to toe in grass clippings, weeds, dust, and quite possibly doggy doo-doo. To say I was outraged is an understatement, times a thousand. I began to swear in languages I didn't even know I knew how to speak. You motherfucking goddamn son of a fucking lousy cheap ass. I was, I was alternatingly kicking and spitting on the still running, still belching debris lawnmower from hell. I was possessed with anger, and like a giant Godzilla Chia pet, I stomped and kicked and swore and spit and kicked and stomped and swore and spit in an effort to destroy Tokyo, uh, er, I mean, the mower. <coughs> Finally, after it dawned on me that I could have hurt myself badly, I turned the damn thing off. Still sweating and covered with, with half my backyard, I heard some mumbling in the, in, the now silent, in the new silence of the aftermath. I turned to my right, and in the street that runs alongside our house, I saw six or seven little children, none of whom could have been over the age of eight. They all had a look, a look of terrified wonder on their cherubic faces. It was as if they had just witnessed something awesomely surreal. It was, it was a look like we should tell mom and dad, but they wouldn't believe a giant six-foot Godzilla chia pet assaulted a lawnmower. I do believe the event forever changed the way I, they looked at life, perhaps not in a good way. And it was then I realized people were trying to raise children in this neighborhood, and they didn't deserve to see something like this on a hot summer day in their care for youth. I decided then and there, yep, it's time to go out and buy that brand new lawnmower I'd been thinking about since April. You see, I had to do this for the sake of the little children. Hmm, number 25. On St. Patrick's Day, everyone is Irish, just like the Olive Garden is Italian. Hmm, number 26, a crew neck fleece pullover? I call it a sweatshirt. I know that guy, so. <laughs> but thanks anyway. Okay, I will do one more. I'd like to thank everybody uh, for coming out and hanging around. I'd like to thank Dr. John Bennett, Elisa Phillips, and Emily Glenn for their participation. Um, I do have a book. It is for sale if you're interested. I have some with me. If you want to, I'd, I'd be glad to sign a copy. John also has books, Elisa has a book, so if, you, if you're interested, ask them. I'd like to do something uh, for myself a little bit here. My father passed away 15 years ago next week. So I'd like to do, I'd like to read a story I wrote about him. <clears throat> and thanks again. This is called Remembering Snook. My dad's nickname was Snook. He got it from one or more of his many brothers and sisters who numbered 10 or 11. I forget. <coughs> I had an uncle Skeek, 
I had an Uncle Mooney. Snook's real name was Richard, like mine, and he went by Dick almost always. Yet my cousins always called him Uncle Snooky. He didn't much like the moniker, but it stuck like glue. I won't kid you, the guy was a real pain to live with, demanding, boisterous, your typical blue-collar father. But he was a good father. He came home after work every day. He was hard on us kids, but he loved us. He was hard on my mother, but he loved her. He, he even, yet even though he quit high school to join the Navy and go to war, he had a certain decency and wisdom and intuitiveness that I don't remember seeing in my friends more mild-mannered fathers. He had this sense of humor. He would just start with the dumb jokes until he found one that finally made you laugh. Hey, you know fat burns? Just light a match to it. Ever hear of Phil Dirt? He's Sam Spade's brother-in-law. And then there was my personal favorite. He would say in a very deadpan voice, you know what burns my ass? Then he would thrust his hand out about waist high and yell, a fire about this high. It still cracks me up. And he would do these outrageous things no one else would have the nerve to do. Like when he heard a rumor that the owner of the shop he worked in was moving this to the shop to the state of Texas, whenever the bosses would come around, he would start singing, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Snoop did this great imitation of the Pope. He would make the sign of the cross and chant, I can beat anybody in this house of dominoes. <laughs> this too still cracks me up. And whenever we drove past the cemetery, he would say, hard to believe, but people are dying to get into that place. Religion was a good subject for him also. His philosophy of why he attended church regularly, you're dead a long time. I think that's funny and more honest than most churchgoers. For a while, me, my two brothers, and Snoop were custodians at our church. What this means is that you do a lot of work, get paid very little, are appreciated even less, and learn that it's the lawyer who becomes the president of the congregation, not the janitor. Still, Snoop make the best of the situation. I remember the whole family would be getting ready for church, invariably running late, and would see my father frantically brushing the shoulders of his sport coat while shouting downstairs at my poor mother, Goddamn dog hair, and one time we had, <clears throat> had to get to church really early, way before the minister did. Why? Because Snook left his cigar on the altar. Fortunately, it had gone out before he, he put it there. And then there was a time he put the ball from the baptismal fountain on his head and went into this routine like he was shooting a machine gun. Rat-tat-tat-tat-tat. One time I asked my dad if our ancestors came over on the Mayflower. He told me they did. And when I learned later on it wasn't true and confronted him about it, he said, there had to be a brown in there somewhere, and what the hell difference does it make what boat we came over on? We got here, didn't we? That's the way he was. Seat of your pants, blue-collar truisms that sometimes contradicted each other, but it didn't matter. You can't make money by working, he'd say. It takes money to make money. Or... You don't get nothing for nothing, which I believe is a triple negative, possibly quadruple. But true nonetheless, in domestic issues, it was either you can't have dogs and furniture, or you can't have kids and furniture, both of which we all know to be true. 
For a while, my father had a lawnmower repair shop and a garage out back, and I have fond memories of hanging <clears throat> out there watching him work and listening to baseball on a summer night. Tony D'Angelo from across the street would be banging away at a, a mower with a hammer, which seemed to be the only tool he knew how to use, and he, and he worked because he worked in a junkyard. Those were good times. Snook had these signs in the shop. One read, Confucius say, no got the cash, no cut the grass. And Confucius say, no got the dough, no gonna mow. And my favorite, good tools cost money. Maybe mine aren't good, but put them back anyway. And how he loved to watch television. Ironically, it brought the family together because there was only one television, Snook's television. But we all sat around watching Gunsmoke and whatever Snook wanted to watch. These are some fond memories. Once after I had gone off to college, he and my mom were visiting at school when Snook told me, television ain't any good anymore, Ricky. And when I inquired why, he said, they ran out of plots. For this was the kind of guy he was, but the big thing I learned about him was tolerance. Yes, from this belligerent, frustrated man, I learned to be tolerant of others. Having served on a ship in the Navy during World War II, a subject he almost never spoke of. He was on a ship that went in after a battle, removed the dead, and helped repair the guns. He wasn't proud of this, and once he told me about a friend of his, a black man. In order for Snook to see his friend, he had to go to the back of the ship in the galley because the cooks were black and they had to be segregated in the galley away from the white guys. Same Navy, same country. One, t and one time we were on a vacation in South Carolina, he and I took the car to the garage because the exhaust was falling off. While the car was up on the rack, he introduced himself to a man of color there for much the same reason. The man's name was Red, and Snook said, imagine that, a white man named Brown and a black man named Red. And a year later, when I had a black friend from Akron, I, I had a back black friend from Akron, I had met at a youth church function, stay at her house, Snook insisted we all go to church together and I remember people walking out. When I was 12, he bought me my first guitar. We looked at inexpensive guitars at first, but when he learned they were made in Japan, he bought, he bought me a Gibson from the good old USA. I ain't buying no Jap guitar, Ricky. Yet seven or eight years later, he bought a Mazda and proclaimed, them Japs make good cars. I guess he forgave them by then. Oh sure, I'm romanticizing a little here. I don't miss going out to change the oil in the car on the coldest night of the year after he waited until it was dark. Put the oil in, Rick. Does it go here, Dad? No. I want you to pour it all over the engine. <coughs> or when I was going on a date and he didn't like the girl, he'd say, don't do anything stupid. And I'd say, what do you mean? And Shook would, Snook would yell, you know what I mean. Hey, I do not miss those times funny as they seem now. After my mom died, Snoop met a woman and remarried. She was nice enough, but she was a Southern Baptist. So Snoop became a Southern Baptist, and believe me, he did not make a good one. At his funeral, there, were <clears throat> there was this young minister, one that Snoop always joked, cared more about taking his money than saving his soul. And if I hadn't written a little biography about my father, I would, have no would not, not have known it was his funeral. So this young Baptist minister is up in front of Snook's casket, Bible in hand, arms flailing about, talking about hell and salvation, and I thought to myself, 
Hey, preacher, you know what burns my ass? A fire about this high. And I swear I saw a snook smile.